Hello, and thank you for calling Sherman Indian High School. Please wait. You are being transferred. Hello. My name is Fern Charlie Bogus, but I like to be called Tara. I don't like my first name, so I, I don't feel like a Fern. <laughs> so um, anyway, my nickname is Tara. I'm Navajo or Diné. Um, I'm originally from Shiprock, New Mexico, and most of the time we communicated on, you know, at home uh, using our native language. My parents did not speak English well and maybe just enough to get by. Today I still speak the language and remember most of the words that were taught me, even though later when I went to public school I did not like it because English became an enemy or nemesis, whatever you call it. My family, we live most of the time in Shiprock, but... Um, because of a lack of job and everything like that, um, we became part of a uh, migratory camp people. This uh, wealthy man, his name is John Jacobs, brought some buses over to uh, Shiprock, Farmington, all those little towns and picked up Navajo families that want to work crops, you know, harvesting them and everything like that. We became a migratory type of people, you know, and I think maybe about, oh gosh, nine or ten. I don't know what was going on, uh, but uh, I was pretty young. My parents decided that uh, they can't afford to keep us at the, at, you know, at home to clothe and feed us, and so they um, signed us up to go to school at Shiprock Boarding School. They registered me and my two sisters there at the Shiprock Boarding School. It's up on the hill, they call it, you know. It's operated for Native American students from elementary to high school, I believe. I remember the day they dropped us off. The dorm, dormitories were in a circle, sort of like, and they dropped each one of us in different dormitories. I had two older sisters. And I thought the building looked so cold and old, and, you know, and I thought, am I going to be here? And I didn't realize at the time it was a place to strip away my identity. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast will center Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, the present, and the future. A final note before we begin, this podcast may contain graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. Welcome to episode four, Colonialism Through Education. In Shiprock, they're all like standing at attention and almost look alike with their short hair and everything. I had long hair, but later on, uh, the dorm people said uh, they got to cut it because it's too long. So they cut my hair and uh, without permi- my permission or my parents' permission. It seems like I was together, and then I was like I was being torn apart. I should remember all these things, but I do because it's very vivid in my mind of what happened to me. On the other hand, it made me stronger, and it made me, I think, what I am today. And you know that many people uh, remember good dreams, but I feel like at times when I was going going through this at that time, it was like nightmares in real life, really. My parents hardly ever visit. I don't know if they were told not to visit me for a while because, you know, of the separation and all that. My two sisters, we were not allowed to visit each other. We cannot eat together in a dining room. We can't meet after school. Uh, we're told that we can't visit at all. They were keeping the family separated. And I used to uh, sit on the front porch as my sisters came back from dinner, and then they would wave at me, and I wanted to run over and hug them and stuff. And that was sad, you know. And one day, um, I missed my sister. Her name is Cindy. I missed her so much. Every Sunday, you had to go to church, and, you know, you don't have a choice. I remember my I saw my sister the last Sunday. She walked to a different classroom. I thought, hey, I can visit her. So the next Sunday, I knew where she went, so I went in there, and I sat with her. I was so, so happy. And then when I got back, the dorm lady came up to me and said, I heard you sat in church with your sister. I said, yes, I did, because I miss her. I want to be with her. So they said, well, you can't go to lunch or supper. I said, what? (laughs) So they really kept the family separate. They could not visit your own brother or sister that was just next door. That was awful. 
And then linguistically, you couldn't speak your language. But when you don't speak English very well and you're embarrassed to speak that language, it's hard, you know. I just didn't say a lot. I stayed quiet a lot, and I listened to some of the girls talk, and I thought, oh, that's how you say that. Okay, all right. And uh, I I spoke my language one time, and uh, I was punished, uh, plus two, three other girls beside me. They did something else I don't remember, but we had to stand in the hallway until midnight without our shoes, just with our nightgowns, and just sit there in the cold. And I thought, wow, I'm speaking my language and I'm being punished for this. But I just thought, oh, well, maybe it's good for me. As a child, you think maybe it's good for me. You know, I thought that was really cruel. I think about it today. I mean, how that's child abuse, you know. And then culturally, you could not sing or dance or wear any traditional clothing. You can't speak your language. You only talk about the non-native ways there. And the uh, majority of the people that worked at dorm were natives. Some of them were Navajos like uh, myself. But they enforced those rules. And I thought, hey, you know, they should be understanding. When they took, they gave us showers, it was a big old room with uh, shower heads all around. It was cold, it was drafty, and everybody had to... You know, Navajos are very, uh, what do you call it? Uh, they don't show their bodies off, you know, and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? They had these shower, uh, big shower room. Everybody had to undress. You had to stand naked in this room. And then one, one by one, they would, you would stand under the shower head and then they would pour this awful shampoo on your head. And then, uh, you had to, then they kind of messed it around so it's all fuzzy and then you had to move to the side. Until all the maybe 20, 30 kids got that. But you had to stand there. And I, I just didn't like showers at all, you know, because you had to stand there. You couldn't take a shower by yourself. I remember that time because many of the kids that were younger, maybe six, they were crying and they just they just didn't listen. It's like they didn't have a heart. You couldn't go and go to the sink and rinse it off or get your towel. You just they just sponge us up and said, You gotta wait here until it's your turn to rinse off. And they're the one that rinse us off. I think my happy times when I sat on my bunk bed and I sat by on the top and I would look out the window and see the snow and I would imagine I wish I had magic a magic wand, I could be back at home. And I just went through uh, some of the things I did with my parents, my grandparents, and my cousins, and I, I just replayed that in my mind. I just couldn't wait to get out. One day my parents came and they said, you know, uh, we're going to go home now, and we're okay now financially. My name is Kevin Whalen. I teach at the University of Minnesota Morris. Um, I'm an associate professor in history and Native American and Indigenous studies. Um, I'm a non-Native person. The, the policies from which boarding schools grew, I think, are pretty foundational um, to the United States itself. Uh, so thinking about sort of the early history of the Republic, you have people like Thomas Jefferson and, and John Knox, um, um, George Washington's Secretary of War, they're really worried about how do we deal with Native people, right? Um, because war is expensive. Um, and they think and talk a lot in terms of, well, if we can just get Native people um, to think, behave, act differently, right? You have Knox and Jefferson and others like them arguing that if we can take people, uh, take Native people out of their communities and, and have them live and work more like white Protestant farmers, right? Start putting those crops in straight rows, um, start living in nuclear one family households, um, all of this kind of stuff. They believe that if you can do that, native people will literally become not just more like white Protestant people, but their skin will become whiter, right? They'll be fundamentally transformed. And so these ideas start to inform federal policy really early on. And, you know, so you have the Indian Civilization Act of 1819 that started sending missionaries out to live and work among tribal communities, Um, again, with that goal of transforming the way that Native people live and work and relate to one another. 
I think it's important to acknowledge the kind of roots of, from which um, federal boarding schools uh, eventually grew. My name is Caitlin Kilia'a, or Katie. I am Urington Paiute and Washoe. I'm an assistant professor in feminist studies at UC Santa Cruz. So Indian boarding schools were um, broadly a national assimilation project here in the United States, but boarding schools came about in the late uh, 19th century. A lot of this history begins with, as, as many people say, Richard Henry Pratt. Pratt was a pretty accomplished uh, military person who had prisoners of war. He had Comanche prisoners of war. And at this time, um, when he had these prisoners, he kind of had this radical idea, this was considered radical at the time, to um, try to assimilate them. So he had these prisoners and thought, well, what if I cut their hair, put them in kind of military garb? Essentially, um, what Pratt did was he put these um, native prisoners of war to work. And it was regarded as very successful. So essentially what happens is he is able to kind of get the attention of the federal government and says, look, um, Indian people can be transformed. They can be assimilated. Let's try and do this on a larger scale. He is authorized with taking over the barracks at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And essentially, we get the first ever off-reservation Indian boarding school. And that's in 1879. My name is Kelly Leah Stewart. I am Gabrielino Tongba and Luceno. I am a doctoral candidate in the joint degree program at UC San Diego and Cal State San Marcos. My research um, looks at the legacy of St. Boniface Indian Industrial School, specifically looking at the actions that settlers and the Catholic Church really um, took in assimilating Native youth. But the other thing that I am trying to do um, is to demonstrate that basically that the mission system has never ended, that from the point of contact to today, it's been an ongoing process and this legacy of Spanish colonization is ingrained in every, every era, how they've been separated historically and is still very much present. So St. Boniface was a, a residential school located in Banning, California. So today the remnants of the school are, I wanna say maybe eight miles from the Morongo Reservation. St. Boniface wasn't the first um, Indian boarding school in California. Um, St. Anthony's was the first boarding school, um, and that was opened in 1886, um, four years before um, St. Boniface opened. When everyone talks about boarding schools, it, it tends to focus on federal institutions with the O and some were run by, by churches. And the conversation here in California is very similar. And I see it from a different perspective. Boarding schools in California, or at least in Southern California, started with the Catholic Church in 1886. And then it went to St. Boniface in 1890. Eventually, St. Anthony's closed. But all of those students from St. Anthony's ended up at St. Boniface. And then two years after St. Boniface opened, the Paris Indian School opened in 1892. And then eventually Paris closed and became Sherman. So the Catholic institutions had 17 years of access to California Indian youth. The Catholic Church still had its hold on California. And the other thing to think about is like the mission schools, we, we, we really look at like, I think when we look at the history of California, we really look at, okay, there's the Spanish era, the mission era, and then there's the Mexican Rancho period, and then there's the American period, um, and boarding schools are in the American period. And I honestly, I really see them as this continuum because the American period has not ended yet. It's still ongoing. It, it, it's, it's just all connected. Overall, there were um, well over 300 boarding schools, um, as well as day schools. And some of these schools were also run by religious institutions, for instance, like mission schools and all of that. And boarding schools are, in fact, still open today. So there are schools, for instance, down in Southern California, um, Sherman Indian School, um, which is not the assimilation kind of factory as we imagine from the late you know, 19th and early 20th century, but still is very much an institution that was developed um, in that period of time. So again, boarding schools were a nationwide project 
and they were also officially compulsory, meaning that Native children were required to attend these schools. Overall, the schools, um, again, were across the United States, but these were schools that were um, originally kind of designed to assimilate certain areas um, and certain groups of people. So, for instance, Stuart Indian School, uh, when it opened in the late 19, sorry, in the late 1800s, um, it was a school that was sort of directly geared towards Paiute, Washoe, and Shoshone students. Um, and then later, a lot of these schools, including um, Stuart, became very intertribal and would kind of have a student population that came across from all the United States. Um, so again, boarding schools are a history that's really late 19th century, early 20th century, but continued on well into the 21st century and are still around to this day. So at Carlisle, you have this, this half-day system where students are spending half of each day in basic sort of vocational curricula and basic, you know, three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic kind of education. And then for the other half of the day, they are doing the labor that forms the upkeep of the school. So they're turning laundry cranks. They're doing agricultural labor. They're cleaning. Women are sewing, making uniforms, cooking, all of this kind of stuff. And when you read through as told to memoirs that, that were left behind by alumni, work is a super common theme. You know, people talking about, I didn't really learn a lot. I worked a lot. And so that became the mold for how federal schools operated as they sprang up across the Western United States between 1880 and 1902, when Sherman Institute became the last major off-reservation boarding school to be constructed. Um, I'm Jean Keller. I um, uh, teach in the American Indian Studies Department at Palomar College and in the History Department at San Diego Mesa College. And I'm also a cultural resources consultant, which means I do archaeology. I'm an archaeologist and a historian. Paris was from 1892 to 1902. Paris Indian School was the predecessor school. It was the first off-reservation boarding school in Southern California. I refer to it as the forgotten school because it wasn't even listed recently on the BIA website showing boarding schools. People have the misconception that it was Sherman, but it wasn't. It existed as its own from 1892 to 90. So it's a 10-year-old school. In 1890, the um, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Thomas Morgan, decided that there should be a reservation boarding school in Southern California. The Indian agent for California thought that that wasn't a good idea, putting a, a boarding school on a reservation. That was like old school that they wanted to follow Pratt's uh, Carlisle model, that it's a what they called them a non-reservation boarding school. So Rust looks around and he finds, he is looking for what he called a thrifty area that uh, would be the perfect place to have Indian children raised. So he finds Paris. Paris had, was a brand new city, tons of flat land. It was an agricultural mecca. They grew all kinds of stuff. The Paris Indian School was such a hot mess. You know, the thing is that the construction was pretty shoddy. And the other thing is that they never really got the whole farming thing going. My name is Amanda Wixon. I'm enrolled in the Chickasaw Nation. And I'm also of Choctaw descent. I'm a longtime volunteer curator at the Sherman Indian Museum. And I'm also an associate curator at the Autry Museum of the American West in Los Angeles. I'm a PhD candidate in Native American history at University of California in Riverside. Sherman um, began as Paris Indian School in 1892, and the, local pop the population of Paris School was more local California tribes, mostly Southern California, um, also some a little bit in Northern California. So they were limited, obviously, by transportation at the time. So anybody that could get there kind of by train, um, by wagon in some cases, streetcar. So when Sherman opened in 1901, started with a handful of Pima students and slowly um, more, you know, obviously more students were added, but mostly from California and Arizona. Well, Sherman um, was the last of 25 federal boarding schools. The first one being Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And that was founded, of course, under Captain Richard Henry Pratt, who had convinced, you know, the powers that be that assimilation would be best achieved by removing young Native children from their homes and their communities 
and kind of isolating them and then inculcating them with, you know, American morals and Christian notions and providing like a basic academic program as well as a heavy vocational program. And this idea of kind of making them useful citizens, even though they weren't even citizens at that point. Pratt really placed outing labor at the center of his curriculum curriculum at Carlisle. This idea that if you change the environment in which a native person lives, you can fundamentally change that person. You can sever their ties to their home communities, to their language, to their culture, and, and to the place that they come from, right? And so Pratt says, look, to put a person in school at Carlisle does this somewhat, right? But they're still around all these other native students. And so let's get them even further into this so-called swim of civilization. Let's send them to live and work in white-owned households. And so he starts sending Native students uh, to live and work with farm families in Western Massachusetts and also in Pennsylvania. You know, some students at Carlisle uh, go out to live with uh, white farm families just during the summer. But some students are sent to live and work with these families year round. So not only are they, you know, they're separated from their families, sometimes for years at a time, and, and they're, they don't even have contact with, with other Native students, right? Outing <clears throat> becomes a really important part of how the Phoenix Indian School operates, and it becomes a central aspect of how Sherman Institute operates. Again, Harwood Hall promises local citizens, hey, look, if you'll support my school, I will in turn provide you with, with uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers. And, and, that's, and that's what he did. But eventually, school officials construct this pipeline into Los Angeles um, from 1909 onward. You have hundreds of young women going out to live and work, you know, sometimes for the summer and sometimes much longer, sometimes for years at a time um, in, in white Protestant households. Um, in Southern California, um, Sherman Institute essentially served as a labor agency that sent hundreds of, of young Native men to live and work at industrial agricultural operations. So one of the things that, you know, my, my dissertation and my research work focuses on the assimilation program. And one of the things that struck me from the very beginning is how it almost was like a machine, like an assimilation machine, every single aspect of the students' lives there was regulated, um, surveilled, but also in the interest of assimilation. It was in not only academics, because they're teaching obviously Western academics, but labor, performative aspects. It was very much a show for the public, for the public to see um, Native people kind of being tamed. The performative aspect was very much a spectacle. Some of my research, I I kind of argue that it was for the non-Indians. It was for the local community and that they could see, you know, everything's okay. We've got everything under control to show that, you know, we're, we're slowly kind of weaving out that indigeneity, that Indian influence of their families and communities. So certainly, you know, every Sunday they did a public demonstration of the military drills and the public would come and watch that, which was very well attended, very popular. Other people have done work on that tourist aspect. In the very earliest days, Sherman was what we would consider now an open campus. Next door to Sherman was a zoo, a park, and right out front was a streetcar that its terminus was actually right in front of Sherman. Kind of this overheard quote from a woman um, at that time period in the early 1900s. We just saw the monkeys. Now let's go see the Indians. That you could, like an animal in a cage, you could go over and see Indians. In fact, there's a very well-known quote by Charles Lummis of the Southwest Museum. Where else can you see Native people or native children at so cheap. You can just go out to Sherman, you know, spend the day in Riverside, and then go see Indians tamed and docile. So far, you have heard from Tar Bogus, Kevin Whalen, Jean Keller, Kelly Lee Stewart, Katie Kalia, and Amanda Wixon. Challenging colonialism in California continues with these voices, and we will also hear from Samantha Williams, Daisy Ocampo, before returning to Tarabagas. Um, so my name is Samantha Williams and I have a PhD in history from University of California, Santa Cruz. And I'm a historian who studies the Native American boarding school system. 
And my work so far has focused on the Stewart Indian School in Carson City, Nevada. So I've written the history of that school and efforts of its students, alumni, family members to sort of commemorate Indigenous experiences at the school. Just working on the history of those schools and trying to make these histories known um, outside of Indigenous nations. Because while if you talk to most you know, Indigenous people, they have some sort of connection to one of these schools, what I have found is that outside of those communities, there's very little knowledge about this history that impacted so many generations of Native people. So the Stewart Indian School was established in 1890. You know, it was part of this overall movement to make sure that Indigenous children were being put into these schools so that they could, you know, fit in with broader society. Again, that's the, the thinking when they were established. And in Nevada, you know, it was an interesting situation and somewhat unique in some ways because, you know, Nevada is, is a big place with a lot of desert, um, with a lot of spaces between, you know, cities, even, you know, in, in 1890, right? And so there was this idea that, you know, Indigenous families in Nevada were better able to maybe hide their, their children, keep them, you know, from being, you know, taken to these schools. And so Stuart was seen as an effort to sort of address this issue more broadly within the state. And, you know, eventually, you know, it ended up enrolling students from across the Western United States as time went on. But initially it was, it was built to address what was seen as a big need in the state of Nevada to really, you know, go after and educate these children. But eventually um, students from 20 different indigenous nations ended up attending Stewart. Initially, the indigenous nations that sent children to the school were the Washoe, the Paiute, and the Western Shoshone. Um, but as time went on, officials from the school would go a little bit further out, you know, sort of in, in circles going further out trying to collect additional children. So a lot of students did not go by choice. Their parents did not send them by choice to Stewart. They didn't send them voluntarily. But Parents were threatened, you know, with losing rations, with, you know, various other forms of, you know, violence in some cases. So if you talk to alumni, sometimes they'll use the words kidnapped. These schools were violent places. A lot of these boarding schools had jails and they had jails for the students. You know, there are several cases, you know, in the early 1900s from Stewart where students ran away. And a lot of students ran away from these schools. And in some cases, they were put in jails. They were put in actual prisons where, you know, they were in dark areas for days being punished for what they had done. There's just a particularly um, malicious um, form of punishment called the hotline. And in this case, teachers would force students to form like a tunnel, basically. And students who were in trouble would be forced to go through the tunnel and they would be hit by the students who were being, you know, forced to participate in this. So, you know, psychologically, you think about you're being forced to participate in the punishment of your fellow students, you know, that's a whole different kind of violence. There are documented cases, cases of sexual abuse at Stewart. When you read about these cases, what becomes clear is that nothing is ever done to go after the individuals who perpetrate these acts. And I would say, you know, it reminds me very much of the way the Catholic church handled predatory priests, that nothing was done, the person wasn't removed, they were simply put somewhere else where the same thing would continue to happen. You can't make general assumptions about what each and every person experienced at these schools. And that while some people experienced you know, truly horrific forms of physical, sexual, you know, emotional abuse. Other people took different things from their, from their educations at the school and used what they learned to help their communities and their families. And, you know, were able to, you know, go on to college and graduate school based on what they did at Stewart. So I think you just have to be very careful and very nuanced in looking at the histories of these of these schools. So Stewart Indian School in Carson City, Nevada officially had its own outing program that operated through the school. Officially, it started in 1916. It was started by a matron from Stewart Indian School. And um, that program was outing young women to the Bay Area in the very early 20th century, so like 1911. Um, over a 20-year period, this program recruits probably at least a thousand Native women and likely many more. But um, for that period of time, it creates a very kind of prolific, thriving outing program. 
that continues into the 40s. So in many ways, I kind of think about those connections, whether it's from the mission, you know, um, period into the rancho period where a lot of the same kind of indenture and domestic work has continued, and into the American period with the 1850 Act. Um, it's very much the same kind of iteration of labor and servitude, and ultimately it's kind of like replaying these sort of settler colonial relations within um, California. When I first started researching the Bay Area Outing Program, what I saw was basically an entrenched labor system where largely it's also coerced. Because you can kind of think of these outing programs as, as different hubs where sort of labor was demanded and largely, you know, Indian girls might have a choice about where they labor, right? And kind of Let's be honest, like the Bay Area has always kind of been uh, a place where people want to go, you know, where they want to kind of experience a city life and things like that. So it did have kind of a draw, like Native women did want to come to the Bay Area because they wanted to go to San Francisco. They wanted to see like city lights and they wanted to ride trolley cars and, you know, go to shows and things like that. Um, so in a way, I think it's important to look at the fact that as much as, again, this is much very much a coerced labor system, there's a way that Native women kind of looked at it and thought, like, hey, well, that's a cool way for me to get new experiences and meet new people and see new places. Um, ultimately, when they got to the Bay Area and actually had to work in the homes of their employers, it was very isolating. Um, it's also very difficult, you know, backbreaking work because we didn't have washers and dryers and things like that. The technology is very low, so it's very physically demanding. And some of the homes that girls worked in, they, you know, they might be like three or four bedroom home. But some of the girls in the outing program actually worked in verifiable mansions, like 11-bedroom homes in San Francisco or things like that. And so you can imagine that they would have had to care for, you know, the family in that home, any children that were in that home. They'd have to clean the bathrooms and, you know, pick up the phone and if there was a phone call and make food and all these very demanding things. So um, as much as it was a new experience for a lot of girls to come to you know, Oakland or Alameda or San Francisco, it was also, you know, kind of a predicament because it was very difficult work for menial pay already. And then, again, two-thirds of your wages would still be sent back to your respective boarding school. And I also look at how girls ran away. So part of that is thinking about how girls just straight up left positions that just did not meet their remote standards where they were just unhappy in the outing program. And I also look at the times where Native girls and young women um, decide to kind of like break curfew and go out and meet new people. And, you know, sometimes they're hanging out and socializing late in the night and thinking about how that's another way of them kind of resisting this outing system because officially a lot of these young women would have signed a contract and would have agreed to kind of a curfew and just to be overall monitored by either the outing matron or their employers, the employers of the home, right? And so I kind of look at the ways that Native women kind of frustrate that and push against that because they want to live life and they want to enjoy themselves. And frankly, just because they have jobs as domestic workers doesn't necessarily mean that's what they want in life. Um, it's largely what boarding schools prepare them for and the kind of jobs they could, you know, get and have access to. But, you know, they want to go out and explore and maybe go to bars and nightclubs and things like that. So um, I kind of look at those little instances that I think really show, you know, Native agency, but also just like Native people trying to live their lives and enjoy themselves in the early 20th century Bay Area. So part of my research really looks at how urban Indian community is actually created at this time, and it's all starting with Native women. So these women are really, they find ways to connect with one another and break through this isolation. Talking about Sherman, one story that was told to me by um, Michael Sosi, a, a Mojave anthropologist, it's, it was common knowledge um, among the Mojave that if you were a domestic worker, when you got to Los Angeles, the first thing you did was call home or write home and give your new address to folks at home. And then people back in that community co would compile rosters, right? And then send those rosters of, you know, all the Mojave women, where they were working, their addresses, um, and send those rosters out to the women in Los Angeles. Um, and within a few weeks, um, they'd be aware of where 
everybody was working. And women got together a lot. I'd say the most common theme among correspondences written to the Office of Indian Affairs by people who were employing Native domestic workers was, we're really not happy because the domestic worker you sent us is going out too much. Um, these women are meeting up in parks and bars, movie theaters, they're going to amusement parks. They're finding ways to create community, even in the midst of this program that is that exists to erase their languages, their cultures, their communities, right? That in so many ways is part of this genocidal system. So it, it speaks to the perseverance and the ingenuity of these women. Again, this isn't to excuse the outing program. This isn't to endorse it or cover over the violence that it did, but it's, I think, again, a way to highlight um, the complexity of, of what these women faced in this assimilationist school system and the choices they had to make. Recruitment was very interesting at Sherman. Uh, so the the most, most often um, the superintendent was working directly with the Indian agents from every area. So Indian agents would often go to a community, kind of look around to see what's, what's children might be unsupervised, or they might have their own kind of ulterior motives. And then they would approach the parents and, you know, offer different things. I think it really just depended on the individual and the community. But I, um, the idea, you know, I've heard of stories like rations being withheld, um, certain kind of deals to be made, or just kind of convincing, persuading the parents that this would be the right thing to do um, to send their children. So the recruitment was, uh, you know, all these local communities and up and down California and Arizona. But definitely, you know, in our records, I've seen uh, some of our letterpress books, the superintendent making sure, you know, reminding the, the agents to find darker Native American children. So, in fact, the, the quote is darker, the better, because there was this idea that mixed race Native people um, with the way phenotypically they presented as light skinned was not good. For the program, because as non-natives, and like it kind of goes with the argument that this was very much for non-native people. Non-native people did not want to see mixed race, because if you're laboring under the idea that native people need all this kind of help and are dependent and need to be tamed and, and aren't docile or useful, you don't want your own white race, you know, mixed in with that. So very much the program was the darker, the better. They wanted children that were phenotypically presenting much darker because it was much easier to, you know, sell the assimilation program. So my name is Daisy Ocampo, and I am an assistant professor of history here at Cal State San Bernardino. And, uh, you know, broadly speaking, my research uh, areas are U.S. history, um, as well as transnational indigenous history and public history. Uh, my tribal affiliation in our language is Gash Amo, uh, but we're also known as the Gashka Nation. Uh, we are located in southern Zacatecas uh, in more or less northern Mexico. Um, and really, my research has uh, grown out of my own family and community experience of historic preservation of our uh, creation mountain, which is just a mile away from our community. Um, as well as the use of our tribal museum to tell our histories, uh, to tell our experience of, um, you know, colonization or attempted colonization, uh, as well as our contemporary voices and revitalization projects that we have going on. Probably at the heart of boarding schools is assimilation and the removal of Native people from land. Right. And this is to be able to lay claims uh, to this land. Um, and what they are looking at is creating an educational model where they can take uh, Native students, uh, essentially uh, assimilate, uh, which is, you know, uh, it's more like ethnic uh, cleansing. So they needed to systematically move people. And I think uh, when you think that by, gosh, 1930s, you know, at least 80% of Native American children had gone through boarding schools, multitudes of generations that are getting filtered uh, through the boarding school system, right? So uh, there was a reason why, you know, uh, boarding schools was the choice, education, and it being weaponized became the choice, right? And it was largely 
uh, because of land. Uh, but I also see in, in uh, you know, subsequent generations, we see some uh, more, um, I, I don't know if choice is the right word, right? But there are very real circumstances that they need to tend to, such as life at boarding school, as horrible was it as it was, right, was better than uh, the social economic status of a lot of tribal communities, again, not out of choice, this is all out of structural inequality, right? Um, and so a, a lot of people went to Sherman because they had three meals, they had a shower, whereas at home, right, they don't have running electricity. After I got out of the Shipra High, I wanted to make, I said, you know what, I want, I want something better for me better. I don't want to be in Shiprock forever. Even though I didn't have all the tools of the white men, I said, I'm going to do something. I, I'm going to make myself go to college or something like that and, and learn all these things. I made my people, my parents proud and everything like that. And as time went by, there was a door of opportunity for me. Uh, my cousins went to Sherman Indian High School. They said, where is that? It's by the ocean. There's a place called Disneyland. I said, I never heard of Disneyland, but there's an ocean. And I saw it in, in one of the magazines. Um, in the 1940s, it was that special Navajo program when the federal government decided that Navajo, they needed to focus on Navajo communities in terms of assimilation and education for their students. So they kind of kicked out most of the other tribes and then just put Navajo students at most of the schools. All of us ended up going to Sherman Indian High School. I think I was barely like 13 years old, and I had two older sisters. And um, again, it was a whole new world. Even though all these obstacles, I thought, you know, oh gosh, not again. But somewhere inside me, I said, I can do this. I can do this. I can fight this. I can learn. I can experience and, and practice and be uh, educated and move on with my life. I graduated from high school there, and I'm glad I went to Sherman because even though I was given a um, demerit for speaking my language and not going to church on the Sunday, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stay here and just finish out because if I go home, I'll be stuck there again. During my senior year, I wanted to go on. I didn't have all the equipment of going to college. I was probably like a C-plus student. And I always wanted to be an actress or a singer. I did. I always wanted to be. I always sang stuff, you know, not traditional ones, but I used to sing. I always liked Streisand's song. I used to sing along, with, you know, when she was on the radio, battery. Uh, we didn't have electricity when I was growing up. So, um I thought it would be so nice to be an, an actress in um, movies because you see all these painted-up non-Indians playing Indians, you know, native different tribes, even putting planes in, in the Southwest, and it doesn't correct either, you know. And so during my uh, last year, I, I was accepted to Pasadena Playhouse, and they accepted me there. And I thought, wow, that is so cool, you know. So I was so happy about it. And then one day my counselor, he's native too. His name is Mr. McNevin. I remember him. And he said, okay, he sat me down. He says, do you really want to go there? I said, yes, I do. I had it in my heart forever. I always wanted to to be a singer and actress. And she said, uh, well, you should think about other vocations. Maybe go back to the reservation. Maybe be a secretary somewhere. Uh, I said, no, I don't want to be. There's too many there and they're all in wage jobs and I want to go on to uh, do something like this, you know. And so he said, well, you know, maybe just go to secretarial school. I said, no, I don't want to do that. And uh, later on, I was accepted to all the schools. Said, he said, well, you're not really college stuff. You're an Indian, first of all. You won't make it there. Plus, you're a woman. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? So I just listened to him. I just wanted to cry, but I said, well, well, what's wrong? I'm Indian. I'm human. I can do it. I can learn. So after he told me that, I just started thinking about it again and again. I thought, well, maybe he's right. Of course, you know, I'm only 16 years old. I thought maybe he's wise. I realized that there was uh, nine other students going to uh, Cal State Fullerton. 
And I thought, well, I can be among them, and maybe we can all help each other, too, and all that. I went to college colleges at CSUS at Fullerton, San Bernardino, uh, summer school at UCLA, NAU, which is the Northern University in Flagstaff, UCR, and some other smaller schools. I earned my California teaching credential and also my BA and a master's degree, which I got at San Bernardino. I was pretty young when I started uh, working at, at Sherman, and at the time, I was probably like 20, and um, I had just gotten my uh, California teaching credential, and at the time, I was told I was going to be teaching world history. It was basically, we're following the basic California school curriculum at the time. Well, as, as I was teaching these class, U.S. history, I thought, I was looking at the U.S. history books, and I said, how come they don't mention Native Americans? It's like it seems like we're always in, in the path of progress, you know. It's like, oh, okay, well, there were the Indians. Okay, goodbye, Indians. Now we're going to move on to, uh, you know, the California Gold or something, you know, whatever it may be, you know, miners and stuff, you know. But it's like they missed that there are Indians here. But as time went by, like I said, I started infusing Native culture and history into my classes to make it so that the students can relate to it. Because uh, when I was taught here at Sherman, it was all about the non-Indians. Many of my teachers were still here when I started off uh, as a teacher here. It seems like they didn't really take your t their time. They didn't know enough about Indians to teach, I don't think. you know. It, it didn't just magically happen. People have been working for a very, very long time in ways that aren't always visible, you know, it was the combination of like Alcatraz, it was a combination of urban native communities saying, you know, here is our story. And finally, there, there's a platform for it. And then you kind of link people like Ms. Boggess, who have been just there the entire time, working their magic and and waiting for the right time to introduce a Native American studies curriculum. And suddenly, right during the 70s and 80s, it gets approved. Not a coincidence, right? But she's finding the right timing and the right strategy to introduce all these new projects that are really going to shift the, the student and uh, faculty and administrative culture uh, at Sherman. Um, and so now we see that, that she's teaching Diné language there, right? And ever since then, it has grown, right? Now you have regalia classes and powwow nights. So one day I said, you know what? They need to know more about their own government, their tribal government. There's like 570-something nations today. And how can they be a participant, responsible person in their own uh, tribal communities? But then I said, you know what, first, they didn't have a Native Studies class. So I said, they need something else, a basic course, before they take tribal government. I just can't start talking about tribal government from way back, and they don't know too much about their own cultures. So I said, that will be the basic course, maybe a freshman course, and then when they're senior, they can do the uh, tribal government classes. It took me some time to do it, and then I ran it through the A through A through G courses and so on. Um, and it was accepted. And then the school board uh, approved it. And they said that uh, for tribal government and native studies, we're going to require that class to graduate. And they didn't have any language classes. I'm the only native speaker here. Even though at, when I was a student here at Sherman, I was given a demerit for speaking my language. There was some sort of a transformation I guess I was there at the right time, and all these things are slowly, slowly changing, where there's more respect for the Native culture and their history and so forth. And a lot of the former students went through that civil rights movement, went through the 60s and all the changes that were happening then, you know. And even in the early 70s with the occupation of Alcatraz, and you have these new expressions of Native sovereignty. And so those students that, you know, former students lived through that, and then they came back to work at Sherman. And I think that if anything, caused the biggest culture change. I mean, despite, you know, federal policy changes and certain social movements, the former students coming back to Sherman made a big difference. Changes definitely occurred at Stewart, but I would say it was less, I mean, there was never a period where the school was run by any of the native communities in Nevada. Um, they pushed for it. The Intertribal Council of Nevada came up with a, pro a proposal in the 1960s 
to transform the school into something that was run by indigenous communities, not just for indigenous students, but for students from all over Nevada. But that actually never happened in Stewart. And who knows, maybe, maybe it would have if it, had, if it had stayed open, but it closed in 1980. Sherman Institute also had a cemetery located about five miles away from the school. And Dozens and dozens of children were buried there for various reasons um, that they passed. You know, there was a typhoid epidemic in the early 1900s where about 40 children passed. And some children that died at Sherman were able to be retrieved by their parents and their remains taken back to their community and their lands. Um, But unfortunately, many students did not. So several decades ago, uh, Lorraine Siskwak organized a ground penetrating radar to find out where the remains were. Um, unfortunately, we don't have every single person identified, but certainly the cemetery is taken care of in many ways by the community. Purely voluntary, the students come and even members of the non-native local community come um, at least annually to take care of the grave sites and clean up around there, and, you know, say their prayers for the, the children that were buried there. So, you know, during the civil rights, we see Sherman also go through this shift where Sherman really becomes this cultural mecca. And it takes time. Uh, it takes time for both the school, the alumni, and the, the, the community as a whole to really um, take ownership of the educational process. Um, and so what you'll see right now are students that actually want to go to Sherman uh, because of their different programs and sometimes because it's a family legacy to attend Sherman, right? And I would also say the 1970s were a period of big change at Stewart. This was the first time that parents and community members were actually invited to Stewart to give their opinions on what their students should be learning and how the school should be structured and really give voice to what they felt their communities wanted from these schools. Um, this was also a period when students protested more openly, when activists came to the school and investigated what was going on there and collaborated with journalists to sort of uncover various things that were happening at the school. And certainly, you know, this renewed attention on the cemetery is part of this larger national narrative, right? Uh, beginning with the discovery of remains in, in Canada. And now we've, you know, calling for an investigation here of Uh, records, cemeteries, and things like that at the boarding schools here. Now, Sherman, of course, as one of the last, you know, one of the only four functioning ones with a cemetery and mostly complete records, um, has come under some sort of scrutiny. But, you know, one thing I think that's important is that many members of maybe the non-Native community don't know, or even just people outside of the Sherman community don't know, is that we have always taken care of the cemetery. Salt song singers came out and did ceremony for the people that were buried there. It's great to see all this renewed national attention, or not renewed, but new national attention on boarding schools and some of the things that took place there and how it affects Indian country. But, you know, it is important to recognize the work that's already been done there and has been done all along. And certainly Lorraine Siskwak was central to this process of taking care of the children that still remain in the cemetery. The Sherman Cemetery was at the farm. The school was expanding so much that they didn't want to take up space for a cemetery that could be used for something else. So they stick it in the farm five miles away and the kids are buried there. And the other kids are the ones making the headstones for them. We haven't found a, a map of the cemetery, except we had, and this is a little later, I'll tell you, we had a ground penetrating radar done, so we know where bodies are buried. But we haven't found an actual map, and we haven't found um, a list of who was buried where. We, we, we just don't know. And I've gone through every, 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 every uh, document. The Brave Hearts online exhibit it really just grew out of uh, initially just Lori and I, we've known each other for, for years. Um, and when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, it was, you know, everyone closed down. Everyone shifted to online uh, formats, uh, but specifically the Sherman Indian Museum where the, the archives are there and the, and the yearbook and other uh, material are there. So Lori and I decided that we would team up and just, try and create an online community, an online format uh, to still be able uh, to bring uh, the history of Sherman to the community, both native and non-native. So it actually first grew out of the pandemic. And then you fast forward a few months 
and um, all the remains of the children in Canada were found, right? So it just really compounded the, the need for, for the online uh, exhibit. And then what we did is we used the Art Steps uh, platform, which is, and what we did is the, the students actually designed the entire museum. We knew that we had about like 14 different topics and we knew that we needed 14 different spaces to tell those stories so we had one on sports we had another one on military the outing program nursing the cemetery um, family and you know the the shift in the 70s and 80s and now what I've been doing uh, workshops for California teachers on how to use uh, Bravehearts exhibit into their history curriculum. So I'm happy to know that the museum is living and it's actually because of just the climate that we're at right now, there's an interest and they want tools and material. Um, And so they're integrating that into their their California schools. So, you know, it's just, um, you know, hopefully it just played a a role in kind of hopefully this domino effect of uh, changing schooling culture and what's being taught and how it's being taught and making sure that we have representation at all levels and very nuanced uh, stories. We want to add something to this discussion. As educators, we see that the Indian boarding school system has also contributed to the invisibility of modern Indigenous Californians. We'll revisit California's problematic history textbooks and curriculum in a future episode. But for now, we want to include the idea that having a separate system of education for Indigenous youth contributed and still contributes to the erasure of contemporary Native communities for generations of non-Native kids. Certainly, my work doesn't seek to diminish anyone's experience, right? And, And there was people that had a wonderful time and met their husbands there and their wives there, and they brought their children there. And so, you know, and I think that's more a testament to the strength of Native people and communities that they're able to kind of triumph through this kind of level of adversity that they faced, you know, for decades at Sherman. The future of boarding schools, it's, it's mixed, right? Some people think that they should be closed permanently, and these Native and non-Native people. Um, other people think that, you know, they should have an entire staff change. It should be run exclusively by Native people. Um, other people think we just, they need more money. Yeah, so my own family history is also tied to boarding schools. Um, my grandmother and her siblings all went to Shilako Indian Industrial School in, in Oklahoma, Chickasaw Nations. And I think as far as their experience go, they went mostly in the 20s and 30s. But one thing that kind of was always struck me growing up, and I grew up in Southern California where, you know, we, we tend to be more amenable to Native cultures, especially I was in Chumash territory. But I, I grew up, you know, understanding, you know, more about Native cultures and, and like with this healthy appreciation for it, but I didn't understand why my own family refused to talk about it. So later, as I got older and I kind of started questioning my family about, you know, our experiences at boarding schools and our just our Native life, you know, I was still kind of, it was an obstacle for me. Um, my, my father grew up in Oklahoma City and experienced a lot of different kinds of discrimination, Native discrimination. And so that experience kind of led him to start a new life out in LA. And he had decided at one point that he was no longer going to be Indian. And that's not, that's a very common experience. I think a lot of people that went through that decided that, you know, they had heard enough from their own parents, in this case, my grandmother, about how being Indian is not something you want to be. It's dirty. You're going to get discriminated against. You're going to get beat up. People don't like you. And so he grew up in that context. And then when he moved out here, he decided that he wouldn't be Indian anymore. Luckily for me, like a little bit later in life, you know, he um, kind of rekindled his relationship with his mother. And towards the end of his life, he, you know, um, started accessing kind of more of those memories and and community things, which he shared with me, which was great. But I think I've I've run into that experience before, and that certainly colored my own uh, work because I wanted to understand why, in terms of my own identity, why would why would we be ashamed of something? Why would we be ashamed of being Native American? And because I grew up in Southern California, I didn't understand that that I didn't understand why anybody would be ashamed. And so it drew me into history and just you know, discovering my own family history of why I grew up like that, why I wasn't allowed to be Native American either. I do think that what happened in the boarding schools was a cultural genocide. I feel like when we say cultural genocide, it implies that maybe, you know, it was assimilation, just getting rid of California mission Indians culture. 
But I think just sometimes genocide alone, because it there are records, there are stories that talk about the goal of educating Native women for St. Boniface in particular was so that they could marry settlers. I mean, that's that eugenics. So even just like genocide doesn't need to be softened with culture. It is colonialism through education. Thank you for listening to this episode of Challenging Colonialism. The speakers in this episode include Tara Bogus, Dr. Kevin Whalen, Amanda Wixon, Dr. Daisy Ocampo, Dr. Jean Keller, Dr. Samantha Williams, Dr. Katie Kalia, and Kelly Leah Stewart. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Martin Reza Martinez, and Daniel Stonebloom. All interviews are by Martin Reza Martinez, all audio engineering and editing by Daniel Stonebloom. Music by G. Gonzalez, produced with support from State Parks Foundation. Please follow us on Twitter, subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. For more information and to learn how to get involved, see links in the liner notes. One additional note, Sherman Indian High School is referred to several times as the Sherman Institute. The name was changed at the request of students, and we want to clarify. Thank you for listening.